All right. Um, welcome back to another episode of Talk Lex. This is I'm Scott Peterson. Gerard is here with me today. Um, we have a, a, another special guest today. Our first repeat uh, guest on the Talk Lex podcast because his his last podcast was so well received. Um, I, I probably I don't know if I told you it's our highest, most viewed and listened to episode to date, Kevin. So I think that yeah, people either really like you. It's it's certainly not me that's driving it. So uh, I appreciate you coming back on. Kevin O'Brien's here. Kevin's a, a criminal lawyer um, in the Capital Region, uh, someone that I've known for several years and uh, we think very highly of from a criminal perspective and someone who's not afraid to kind of speak his mind on, on some of the kind of interesting issues that come up in that capacity. Kevin, maybe you can give just a little bit of background for people who didn't listen to the first episode about, you know, kind of who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, you know, I'll kind of just go kind of in reverse. Um, I, I have my own criminal law practice now that I work with uh, my partner, Adam Eggleston, who's terrific, and um, Taylor Cowan, who's our paralegal and office manager. Prior to that, I'd uh, done some criminal defense uh, for, for a couple other firms, and I'd been a prosecutor for about three years, um, all of that after graduating from Albany Law and um, Binghamton University. So um, that, that's kind of where we are. I think I've spent, you know, if, if I was admitted in 2006, I, I would say that all but maybe those three years as a prosecutor and maybe six months uh, have been criminal defense. So it, it's, it's been a good run of criminal defense and I, I still like it quite a bit. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I, I imagine it never ceases to be interesting. Um, I'm sure it's, I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of very different scenarios that kind of come through your world day to day. Um, we, so we wanted to kind of bring you on initially to talk about bail reform. Um, and one of the reasons we, we thought of this is because obviously we're just coming off an election season and there's a lot of talk on social media, um, uh, in the news about, you know, the increases in crime throughout New York state, throughout the country over the last couple of years, basically since COVID it seems. Um, and most people don't really understand how the bail system works in New York, but I think there's at least some claims or attributions to uh, bail reform as contributing to violence or violent people being out in the street in New York. Uh, I don't know if that's true, um, but we don't practice in this world. So we were curious to hear kind of the perspective of someone who, who practices in criminal law about you know how that system works. So maybe you could kind of talk about, you know, before say 2019, you know, how did, how did the bail system work if someone got arrested? What, what did that look like? And, and did it apply in every case? Or under what circumstances would bail become an issue? Um, I guess it, it was all prior, prior to this, it was really discretionary on the judge's part. There, there wasn't, um, as far as I know, um, any crimes uh, where they could not set bail. Uh, typically, most judges would not have most misdemeanors, you know, um, perhaps uh, uh, <clears throat> crimes that didn't have a victim or, or, or something like that. Um, but uh, what happened was, and I'm really still kind of trying to process all of the changes and whether I agree with them or disagree with them, but um, uh, what happened was in, in 2019, and I think it was put into place early 2020, uh, there was a whole kind of sweeping bail re reform legislation that has kind of become a, a political football that, that people are playing with. But um, to kind of put it as simply as I can and, and as best I can, is it, it did a lot of really good things, um, both with discovery and um, with uh, the, the bail system, making it less arbitrary and subjective, which also created its own own problems as well. So when you say less arbitrary and subjective, um, my understanding is essentially the law eliminated cash bail for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, it's almost exactly that. Um, there, there were some things uh, that, that they ended up adding. I think there was an amendment sometime mid uh, 2020. Uh, they, they added some differences in there, but initially you're exactly right. It was pretty much, it had to be a felony 
and it had to be it had to have some sort of violence uh, in it. Um, strangely, the the initial thing I, I believe, and and perhaps even even still, um, actually not still, but I think initially like burglary was was not included, and and some sex crimes, which were really uh, bothersome to. I guess the public at, at large, but the the potential victims of those crimes. How often does this come up in in the criminal practice? How often is bail an issue? Um, I would say, you know, for for me, uh, even prior to to two thousand twenty, it was it was relatively uncommon to have bail. I, I think the judges were essentially doing most of the things that uh, they're doing now, but with some pockets or, or different courts or judges who were perhaps being more punitive than, and, and kind of caused this uh, bail reform to come into place. It's, it's, it's interesting. I always try to think of why this needed to be done or, or why it didn't need to be done. And, and there are certainly some courts and some judges that, that I could point to um, who would use it as, as a mechanism to keep people, oftentimes poor people, oftentimes uh, people of color, uh, keep them uh, incarcerated while the case is pending. And myself and, and probably even more so uh, like public defenders would, would often be put in the, the tough situation where the person, if they took a plea, would would get out of jail um, because they had bail set. But if they didn't take a plea, they'd end up sitting there waiting for uh, a trial. And you know, most people are going to take the opportunity to to get free and, and get away from from incarceration, given that chance, even if it's not in their best interest legally. That's. I remember watching or listening to, there was a serial, you know, the serial podcast. Yes. Um, and I, you, cause the way you mentioned it, it, it described, and it wasn't in New York, but a couple of, you know, bigger city court systems where judges were abusing uh, the bail system to do exactly that and to, to sort of force pleas in a lot of cases. And it seemed like it was a pretty effective way from, for them to accomplish what it was, what it was that they were trying to do, but it clearly disproportionately impacted people of, of lower economic means in particular, I think. Yeah, of course. And in, in the way that even the bail now to me is completely arbitrary and rather stupid because, you know, they, they don't have a good means of determining what an appropriate bail would be. So, you know, for some of uh, my clients, 20 bucks is like a million. And for some, you know, a million might be nothing to them and they would have no problem losing that if they were to skip out of the country or something like that. Those are extreme examples, but, uh, you know, people vary widely in, in what they're able to afford and, and use uh, in order to, to get themselves out of, out of jail. And frankly, you know, with the exception of maybe homicides or, or very serious rapes or, or something like that, there's not a lot of uh, uh, well-off or rich people sitting in jail waiting for a trial. Most of them are out. They can participate more fully in their um, defense and uh, they can be with their family and, and all sorts of other things. And, and it's, it's so multi-leveled in, in what the advantages to, to being out are um, and, I, and I totally get the concerns from the other side too, but uh, it, to me, I, I've, I've really just been going back and forth on it, but from, from a practitioner, it, it's way better and, and easier for me to be effective if I can meet with my client in the office on a regular schedule with computers and other, you know, media that, that we may need, you know. Uh, I, I, during COVID, prepared for a, a murder trial where the best we could do was sit in a jury room with the, with the client. And that was very nice of the judge to accommodate us in that way, but we were trying to watch videos and, and do things. Um, and, and the timing's just not the same, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're the same, but I meet with clients on weekends. I meet with clients, you know, at eight o'clock at night, sometimes it, you can't do that necessarily when, when they're sitting in jail. Yeah, one of the things that Javon and I were talking about before was how much, how much does someone in your position frankly how much does it affect or how much do you care whether your clients in or out i think you sort of answered answered that question i i 
Are there any advantages from a tactical perspective of, of having someone who is who's held in, or is it, is it simply as it's as straightforward as you know they're they're much harder to to have good access to out of jail? Because I would think you know if they're in jail, there's a central place; they're not going anywhere. Um, you can meet with them. Obviously, it's not it's it's certainly less comfortable and less ideal for them. I'm just I'm just curious. There probably are. I mean, it, there there's always exceptions to rules. I, I would say that you know, uh, one, if you're incarcerated um, by by law and in practice, you get a quicker trial, which is good. They they have to rank those people uh, in front of people who are out, um, and sometimes, you know, these are kind of exceptions to a rule. But sometimes there there may be somebody who you know is going to end up incarcerated in, in one way, shape or form. During that time period, they're normally able to stay closer to home. They're building up the time that they're ultimately going to have to serve. And you know it's easier for their family to visit them and, and things like that. It's also easier if uh, <clears throat> the client has a bad criminal case to have a real conversation with them about what the realistic chances of uh, success or or ultimately incarceration are, and they're typically more open to those conversations uh, on the inside than they are on the outside, because there's a lot of fear about going to jail and what it's going to be like. And if the person's there, they at least have a preview of, of what they might be seeing. But overall, um, you know, if, if, if I knew nothing else, I would almost 100% of the time want my client out of, of incarceration while we're preparing for the case. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that, that makes sense. Um, do you, is, is, it, is it realistic that clients flee when they're, when, I mean, do, do you see, is that something that you see or is that something that's, you know, uh, made for a, a law and order episode that, you know, clients are going to flee the area and not, not present for trial or not present for, um, you know, uh, for any of the preliminary hearings or anything like that? Um, it, it does happen. Uh, I, I think it probably happens a lot less than, than people think. And uh, strangely, I'm always shocked that, that people don't flee more, more frequently. There's some people that I've known, I'm like, they are going to prison, they have the means to go to someplace where they're not going to be caught or a non extradition country. And I can't understand why they don't I, I sort of root for them to run in a, a weird way, which I know I can't. Um, ethically, I have to tell them to be there. And I, I certainly don't tell them to run. But in a weird way, it's like, you're cheering for the bad guy in a movie. Like, um, I had a uh, client, a couple, uh, it was probably, yeah, a little over a year ago is probably the summer of uh, 2021. Um, and I knew he, he came in on the morning of trial when we're selecting the jury. And uh, he pretty much lambasted me, lambasted the judge left for lunch and never came back. And he was gone for a long time. They ultimately found him. But I, even though the client was a very difficult client, I really wanted him to get away and, and stay going. Um, but uh, it, it certainly didn't help his case. And uh, I would say that, you know, people run or don't show up for court, maybe, maybe 5% of the time, it, it probably lower than that. At least my opinion, and so, speak for like public defenders and stuff like that. It's a different scenario. Yeah. And <laughs> in those scenarios, is it your, in your experience, are the, how, I mean, how does it work? How do, so a bench warrant is issued, right? And then is it up to, you know, who makes a determination as to how aggressively they're going to go after someone? I'm sorry, you were breaking up there a little bit, can, <clears throat> and it might be. Yeah. Um, what, you know, I'm just, I, I'm curious, you know, in those scenarios, if someone were to, you know, skip out on bail or, or flee before a hearing, you know, what, I assume the judge would issue a bench warrant. And, you know, I'm just curious, like how, who determines how aggressively they're going to go after someone? Or is it just a matter of whether the person pops up at a, you know, gets himself into trouble again? You know, I don't know. It seems random to me. I mean, the more serious the crime, I think the more they're, they're likely to look. I've had clients, you know, who have taken off and maybe they'll be out in California or Idaho or something like that. And if it's a relatively low level crime, the likelihood is, is they're not going to go pick them up, even if they do get stopped and, and held. 
but they would be held for a period of time. I, I forget the, the period of time that the other state has to hold them until New York has to go and get them or, or not. Um, I think it's like 21 days, but I, I'm, I might be making that up. Um, so it really does depend on the crime. It depends on the police department. Um, probably depends on the DA's office too, because if they're really motivated to get them, they're going to be making more calls to the sheriff or the local PD or, you know, FBI or, or whoever they're using to, to try to find this person. Um, that, I'm, I'm going to finally say something. <laughs> this just kind of ties in with something that I had read when we were kind of preparing for today that I did not know and, um, you know, ties in with, you know, people taking off when they're out on bail, but also maybe some of the misperception out there about what bail reform did do and didn't do. Um, so what I was reading is that when judges decide um, to set bail or not, the criteria they're supposed to apply is your likelihood of coming back to court as opposed to whether you are a dangerous person who should or should not be kind of put back on the streets. Um, is, th is that accurate? It's certainly accurate in the way that the, the law is written and the way that it's supposed to be applied. Um, you know, you, you never know what's going on in the privacy of a, of a judge's mind. And I do think that, that a lot of judges <clears throat> do factor in the nature and, and the charge crime. Um, and I do think they, they factor in, you know, criminal history. And it really is supposed to be like you, like you laid out, that it's just supposed to secure an appearance. And that's probably one of the most um, misunderstood things about the, from, from the public, because in other states and even federally, they can factor in the person's um, you know, uh, dangerousness to, to society. In New York, they're, they're not supposed to do that. And um, I was reading uh, several things about that uh, in preparation for this. And, and I was kind of persuaded by, by both things. So I don't know where I come down on it, but um, you know, right, right now, it, and even before, um, even before the bail reform, uh, dangerousness was not a factor uh, that, that judges were supposed to incorporate into their decision. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't feel educated enough on this subject or, you know, to have necessarily a certain opinion one way or the other on the bail reform. I mean, I think probably it's not super controversial that, you know, the playing field should be a little bit more, you know, even depending on your economic status for people committing the same crime. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone wants a bunch of super dangerous lunatics roving the streets necessarily either. But one of the things that I thought was important to kind of get out a little bit is, you know, is that actually happening or not? And what did the bail reform law change and not change? So I think that that piece of it is important, um, you know, I think for people to know that this is like going back to the 1970s from what I saw that you don't necessarily take this dangerousness idea into consideration, at least not overtly. So that that at the very least is not something that is new from the bail reform for people to think, you know, oh, we used to be able to take this into consideration and now we, you know, are just letting everybody, you know, out no matter how dangerous they are. Right. And, and I think to, to actually answer your question rather than kind of skirt it, I, I think judges have always been factoring in dangerousness and I, I suspect they still are. What, yeah. I, what I think that um, this did probably more than anything was kind of sent the judges and the prosecutors sort of a message like, hey, we're trying we should try to err on the side of allowing people to be out while they're accused of uh, a crime. And we shouldn't be holding them in um, unless it's absolutely necessary to, to secure their appearance. And that's something I really like about the, the bail reform. And, and again, I'll acknowledge there are problems with it, but um, the thing I really like is, is you know, 
I think it's been kind of a charade for a long time that, that we've been playing that people are presumed innocent while they're sitting in jail wearing orange jumpsuits. And, you know, oftentimes for, I've had clients sit in, you know, jail, it was primarily over COVID, but for more than a year awaiting a trial. And that's not any way that any, um, you know, I, I think uh, modern and, and free country should be, should be operating uh, if, if we really want to take ourselves seriously and, and say that we are giving people the presumption of innocence, which I think is kind of nonsense anyway. I don't think anybody really gives my clients the presumption of innocence, but, you know, it's written and, and it's kind of one of the foundations of this country. So I, I think it was a good reminder to judges and prosecutors, hey, they shouldn't be sitting in jail for, for any period of time that, that's unnecessary until you've proven them guilty of something. And I think the point you made earlier was really good, but that wasn't really something that I saw come up in the conversation, but just that people who are, you know, sitting in jail for that significant period of time are more likely to take a plea and then they're going to have something on their record for the rest of their life that I assume can impact them in a million different ways. You know, we do employment law. That's something that comes up. A hundred percent. And they do it. They're, they're sneaky about it. it is, it's annoying because my, my, my point has always been, you know, we should be focusing on more serious crimes, you know, people where people are hurt or victims or things like that. Instead, we make a lot of kind of low level arrests. We put people away who, you know, maybe are poor or, or disenfranchised in, in some way or another. You know, you'll, you'll have, I, I remember even when I was a prosecutor, people would end up doing 15 days on a disorderly conduct, which is, you know, not a whole hell of a lot more than, than a traffic ticket, honestly. So it's, it's, it's a strange thing. And, you know, one of the things that this got me thinking about, because um, I do think that it's somewhat coercive in, in allowing people to, or, or pushing people to take a plea that may not be in their best interest, or, or may not be something that can be proven, is they do it with DWIs too, because they take people's license right at arraignment. And, you know, if you don't live in Manhattan or something like that, that's a serious uh, issue for you to have. And none of the time that you're without your license counts towards any ultimate suspension or revocation should you be convicted. So a lot of people um, will, will end up taking pleas in, in that crime and it, it has nothing to do with their freedom. So when you add in you know, incarceration, being away from your family, potentially losing your job, potentially losing your housing or, or you know, custody of your kids, that's gonna be even more influential than, than kind of the, which, which I don't agree with, uh, taking your license on a DWI at arraignment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. It makes sense why people would take, would take pleas in those scenarios. Um, people need to try to move on as quickly as they can, I would imagine, right? And that's, that's what they say. I wanna shift gears a little bit because you mentioned something that we didn't talk about before. We may have actually talked about this on the last um, discussion which is that I think you said something to the effect of you don't, you don't think people are giving your clients a presumption of innocence. Um, can, maybe you can go into that a little bit more. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it in the framework of how it's changed, if it's changed at all over the course of your career uh, in terms of, of seeing how juries in particular respond to people who are accused of a crime. You know, if, if social media, if, if uh, the, you know, the kind of ubiquity of comments and commentary has changed kind of the perspective of jurors as you see them towards criminally accused people. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for other attorneys, but I will tell you what's what's been my position. And my position has been, uh, and I think it's one of the few areas where I haven't really deviated from my original position. I don't think anybody really enjoys the, the presumption of innocence. When I, when I have people come into my office and they're sitting across from, from my desk, I, I tell them, make no mistake, um, I'm gonna give you the presumption of innocence. Um, the people who work here are gonna give you the presumption of innocence and perhaps your family members will give you the presumption of innocence. Everybody else thinks you did something uh, because most people haven't been arrested. Most people haven't seen um, some of the injustices that uh, happen more frequently than any of us would be okay with. So the, the view that I take when I'm going into a jury 
is uh, very simple. It's I want them to start to think rather than to just kind of be on autopilot. So one of the things I ask, and I almost never repeat myself, but I do repeat myself in, in, in this regard. I, I often start off with um, <clears throat> a question like this, like, um, you know, who walked in this morning and said, damn, there's another innocent man sitting with his attorney at the defense table. And you don't, you don't get any positive or you don't get any affirmative answers there, but you can kind of see at least with some people, the lights kind of going off in their head and saying, okay. And, and then I explain it, you know, I'll, I'll sit home with my wife or, or with my kids and we're watching a movie and we're trying to figure out what happened or who did it, who's going to be the first person to be able to figure it out. Well, that's not the name of the game with the jury. You want them to almost be a blank canvas. And I don't, have the delusion that they're really a blank canvas but if i can get them thinking and at least considering that thought process during uh the jury selection um i, I think that we have a much better chance of being successful in the in the trial element of the case so the the jury selection for me is very very much about getting them to open their mind up to the idea that my client might be innocent and not relying on the instruction that the judge is going to give them that you know they're presumed innocent because you know most people if you walk into a courthouse with somebody they're like oh what did you do or what did he do you know and and that's natural and it's not even necessarily wrong it's just wrong when you're a juror uh judging another another uh citizen of this country yeah we deal with that in um in the civil context, you know, in malpractice cases in particular on the plaintiff side, um, the stakes are different, obviously, uh, and the standards different, but you're going in. Uh, and what I find is when you're talking to juries, you know, the presumption in when you're a plaintiff and you're suing a, a doctor or a healthcare provider is that, you know, you're greedy and you want money and they didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and so right out of the gate, we're always trying to reframe that the thought process of, you know, can you step aside from your, your kind of preconceived ideas if you have them? And can you think about exactly, you know, just what we're going to tell you here? And can you look at it from that perspective? And I, you know, it's, it's easier said than done. I think sometimes people will tell you what you want to hear and then they'll do, they'll make decisions however they want to make the decision. But um, you're trying to cut through that, I think, out of the gate. It's not easy. Yeah. And I think it's sort of intentional, probably in, in your view, um, you know, the insurance companies and stuff sort of have subtle ways of, of spreading that, that message. And then I think, and again, I'm not anti-law enforcement or anything like that, but I think law enforcement has subtle ways of, of doing that as well, because almost everybody knows a cop and, you know, most of them are good dudes that are, or, or ladies that are, that are trying to do, uh, what they think is right. But you have to acknowledge that they get it wrong sometimes and that, you know, even, even myself, and, and I often use myself as an example, I get it wrong all the time, if, especially if I think something happened, I'll put on blinders to the, to the point that, that I'm missing real information that, that could be helpful to me coming to the right conclusion rather than just filling in the blanks in, in a conclusion that I think is already there. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, Giovanna, before I move on, did you want, did you want to talk anything else about on the bail reform? Issue? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, the only thing I want to, you know, again, sort of in a clarification sense, and I, I might have a, I know it became a very political thing. I think also because I'm a woman, I kind of get other women coming to me with, you know, a sense of like, our city's unsafe, you know, what there, there seems to be a lot of crime going on. And I, I think probably we won't be able to answer you know, that question as to does any of this have to do with bail reform or does it have to do with COVID or is it, you know, a national issue? Um, but I do want to kind of just clarify, because I think you had touched on this, that there were some amendments to the law that came out that really this is applies primarily to nonviolent um felonies or misdemeanors is that right so like violent felonies sex offenses at this point now are not like that's a, a separate category that we don't necessarily have to say you know if we see a, you know a newspaper article of of this you know disgusting thing that happened the the sometimes i'm noticing like the knee-jerk reaction to that is bail reform 
but I don't know that that's necessarily accurate for kind of a pretty significant category of cases. Well, um, they have added some misdemeanors and, and those primarily involve, uh, you know, violence and things like that. And then there's also the addition that if you're out, meaning that you've been arrested and you've been released and then you get rearrested with another crime, for another crime where there's a victim, regardless whether it's a qualifying event or a qualifying crime or not, um, they can set bail at that point. So I think those were good additions. The other part is, and, and you kind of hit on it, and it makes me so, so mad because, you know, most people don't have these kind of long form nuanced conversations. And of course, it's not just bail reform. And of course, it's not just COVID. And it's not just, you know, uh, that, that people are kind of down and out or the economy is bad or whatever. There, there's all sorts of factors. And I think to, to say just bail reform is, is about as silly as saying, you know, just COVID or, or something like that. People are, you know, in, in different geographies or different states, different um, cities, all have different uh, uh, contributing factors. And, you know, I, I get kind of screwed up in the um, reading the statistics because as I was preparing for this, I, I looked at some of them and, you know, there was, uh, I forget the, the publisher, but it was, it was a relatively liberal um, website. And they were talking about how low people who've been released, uh, their, their crime rates are. And then I think the New York, you know, a handful of really violent acts that happened when somebody was let loose because of bail reform. Now, both of those things can be true, but, but we have to take them, um, we have to take them and, and kind of evaluate it and, and make adjustments where we need to and, and try to do that in a way that protects the accused and, and the citizenry. And it's, it's hard to do in our, our somewhat broken political system because everybody wants to score a point or, you know, dunk on somebody and, and say, well, it's because, you know, Kathy Hochul did this or, you know, or, or there's no increased violence. I, I think you really have to look at it and try to have an open conversation and try to figure out the solutions rather than just pointing to one thing. Yeah, and it's hard, like you said, it's hard to have kind of nuanced conversations. I think one of the catalysts for us talking about we should, you know, ask you to come on again and talk about this a little bit was because I read an article about something that happened locally that was kind of a worst nightmare scenario for parents of somebody abducting a couple of children out of their house and um, that they had met on social media and there was like sexual assault allegations and this person was being held without bail. That was very clear in the article, but every single comment on the article said this person is out on the streets because of bail reform. So it was sort of like you're constantly combating this like misinformation all the time, um, you know, and like on both sides of it. Um, but that was kind of one of the things that sort of precipitated us saying this, this probably makes sense to talk about. Yeah, and it's so much, it really is so much more than just one thing. And the, the, once the article is out there, or once the, the people have their mind made up, it's very difficult to, to change their mind. Um, I, as I've practiced longer and longer, am more and more aware of how little I know. And I frequently change my opinion. If we'd had this uh, conversation about bail reform a month ago, uh, I probably would have been talking about it in, in a different way um, because, you know, and I think most people should do this is, is really be open to having your ideas evolve and listen to people that you disagree with. And if they have good points, you can adopt those points without necessarily adopting all of the things that they say. Right. 100%, 100%. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, in addition to bail reform, there were some changes in the disclosure laws. And I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, I don't think, most people have any understanding of what the government has to prove, A, and B, for the purposes of this conversation, what the government has to do if they charge you with a crime uh, relative to, to, to disclosing what they intend to prove. Um, and I always, whenever I think about this, I think of that scene in My Cousin Vinny uh, when, he, when he says, you know, the prosecutor gave me all his files. And she's like, of course I did. It's called disclosure. You 
dickhead, right? It's like most people don't know that, but um, other than maybe watching that movie. So, you know, you get accused of a crime, you have a client, what's what's the obligation on the, the, the state to to turn over evidence? And what, what do you get? What do you expect to get? And sort of what's like the time frame for that? This, this is actually one of the things that uh, came through that, that kind of legislation that I think was really a good thing. Um, and, you know, most of the local DA's offices were already kind of complying with it to a large extent anyway. So, but, you know, there's places like Columbia County where we would have to really pull teeth to get even half of what we were entitled to. So the way that it was before, um, you had to file discovery demands and the, the people had to respond to those. And to a large extent, with, with a few exceptions, if you didn't ask for it, you weren't necessarily going to get it legally. And there may be some disputes about what needed to be turned over or whatever. But the, the bail reform legislation kind of changed discovery completely and it made it almost automatic and uh, it's supposed to be, I believe it's 14 days from arraignment. Um, that hasn't been necessarily adhered to perfectly. They can, they can file supplemental uh, discovery. And, and I sort of understand that in the sense that, you know, there's blood work sometimes or testing of drugs or, you know, fingerprints and, and things like that. But the, the, the idea is that a client or an accused person uh, needs to have all the information and all the evidence against them before they can intelligently make a decision about how to proceed on their case. So even after you get all of the discovery, um, there, there's, again, I'm not great with dates, but I think it's like, they've got to give you at least three days to make a decision on offers and really evaluate things with your clients. Things like video are, are automatic um things like uh police reports statements um you know audio uh really the things that you would be looking for i don't have an expansive list but uh most of the stuff that we would have been requesting before and even some other stuff like before we couldn't get police uh disciplinary files and now that's now that's a part of it which is, is a real big deal and um <clears throat> it just allows an accused person to have a better understanding of what they're being accused of, what the evidence is against them, and then crafting a way to, to be able to defend that case or at least try to negotiate something better with a complete picture. Because before it was like, you know, a half done puzzle sometimes, you know, you'd get an offer and they'd say, we need to know within a week and you don't even have all the discovery, uh, which, which really makes people, it's tough because, memories are flawed too you know i don't think necessarily all my clients are lying but sometimes they don't know what their criminal history is or they don't remember the the act because it was intense or you know traumatic or whatever um as well as as well as they might like to and and so there we at least get to see everything they have and it, it allows me to make a better recommendation to my client. It's not that I'm gonna lean on them or make them do something, but uh, it, it at least allows us to have a clear picture of what's coming and, and what we think we can do from there. So, so that's a lot better. And that's one of the things that, you know, hasn't been spoken about very much. And, and it really keeps some of the, I guess, more unethical uh, DA's offices in check. And, and again, most of them were not an issue, but uh, some of them, I feel like the law was written exactly for them. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just imagining, you know, if you're representing an accused person and you have half the file and they're being given an offer that if they take it, they're going to jail. That's, that's you, you and the client in a very, very difficult position. I mean, we, we, we handle that, you know, we have negotiations in civil cases all the time and, and you try to get a full picture, but depending on the procedural state of the case, you might say to yourself, you know, we are, there are some things we don't know yet. And we're, we're taking those into account when we, when we consider these things. But in those cases, we're talking about money. We're not talking about going to prison and, and the decision making. So I, I, I can imagine that, that that's a serious or was a serious challenge. When it was even worse, like, again, and I've referred to Columbia County before, and I, I, I only refer to them because I, I really think that, that they practice 
and, and quite frankly, I still think they practice in an unethical, unfair way um, out of that office. And it, it starts with the leadership who's, who's Paul Chaika. He was a judge and he's been the DA and he's a very charming, handsome guy walking around the courthouse. But, uh, you know, I don't think he's doing good ethical work. And before, before all this happened, like if we, def if we filed a discovery demand, they would either withdraw offers or because he didn't feel like he could control the local court judges, he would indict misdemeanors and proceed on them in county court where I, I, again, I'm not in his mind, but I think he felt like he had a little bit better home field advantage because he's working out of the same courthouse. Uh, one of the judges used to be his chief assistant. You know, it's a, there's a lot of things going on there. And you're like, what is this? Like, why, why are we doing it this way? Like, if, if you really think my client's a bad dude or a bad lady and, and you've got a good case against them, show me. And then I can come in and I, I can say, you know, hey, client X, I, I think you need to take this deal. Or, you know, I don't think we have a very good chance at trial. But they, they were always trying to hide the ball. And I, I think they still do to a large extent because they're protected by their, their own um judges down there which is unfortunate and you know the as you know probably even slower with you guys but justice happens slowly so things are still being decided now um from that 2020 legislation and i think you want to give you know there is some value like you said in giving kind of you as the attorney the benefit of the doubt of if you receive a full picture of what's going on that's going to inform how you advise your client. I mean, we have that, I would say probably more so in employment cases than PI, but you know, if you think my client did something wrong, tell me, give me, you know, I've had people drag out through like an entire EEOC process, you know, a, a video of something. And I'm like, why didn't you give me this video six months ago? Like we could have all <laughs> saved a lot of, you know, time and effort. I noticed in in the Southern District of New York, they have an employment cases kind of a, a analogous system, I think, to what this new disclosure is, which is there's just categories of information that you have to give right off the bat. Nobody has to ask for it. You just give it to them. And I think that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that it ultimately saves resources by disclosing things sooner and, and being able to have an open and fair conversation. But the, Part of the problem, and, and this is always going to be the problem, there's a lot of shit lawyers out there. And, you know, if the lawyer has the full picture but doesn't understand what he's looking at, uh, the client still gets screwed. So I, I tell my clients that all the time. Like, I want you to be comfortable with me, but you got to be really, really careful with, with who you hire because uh, there's a lot of attorneys who are out there who just go in and do what the DA says, especially those that stay in very local areas. And I've never um, seen that as my job. And, and I try to be as friendly and, and decent with people as, as I can be, but, but I can't care about anybody else's feelings or time or anything other, other than my client. And I'll tell them that, you know, that includes their family. You know, there's cases where, you know, a father doesn't want something done to his son. And, um, you know, if, if it's in the son's best interest, I don't care what the, what the father, what the father thinks. And, you know, even if the father's paying the bill, I can't. Yeah. yeah. And that's, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, cause you were talking about, um, you know, representing, uh, you just mentioned, you know, somebody's father paying the bill. I want to make sure we get to something that you had mentioned kind of before we got on formally to talk about, um, you know, you were seeing kind of an increase in, is it like youthful offenders? Is that the right terminology? Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. Um, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately, because I would say that probably as recently as two or three years ago, certainly five years ago, I might have had zero or one client who was say under the age of 19. And right now in the last year, I would say that I've had more than 10. And it seems to me, and I'm still kind of working it out in my mind, so I don't have a definitive answer, but it seems to me like something is going on where 
things that used to be disciplined um, at a school level or at you know a home level are now involving the police with with young people, and I do not think that that's a move in the right direction. I, I schools are, are have been despicable to my clients. Like it seems like they want to kick people out and, and cover their own ass um, for for whatever reason, um, you know, because. Some of the cases that I've gotten, and, and they vary widely, um, are these ones where a kid is in school and makes, quote, a, a terroristic threat. And obviously, everybody cares about their kid, but a lot of the things they're saying are things that I've said to my buddies a million times in school and then after school, you know, like, I'm going to kill you or, you know, I'm going to kill myself or whatever the case may be. And I, I certainly understand that we want to address violence and, and potential suicides and things like that. But I think we do that through education and, and not kicking them out of school and, and trying to make them better citizens rather than putting them through the court system at such a young age where I think they ultimately, it could have real long lasting um, impacts in the sense that I don't, I don't think these clients are gonna trust police um, as much anymore. I don't think they're gonna trust uh, the institutions that, that are supposed to be protecting them like the courts and like uh, the school systems. And, and I just think it's kind of, at least from my perspective, and again, it's always weird because public defenders have somewhat of a different caseload and a different thing. So I don't know if they've been experiencing more, more than I have or, or prior to, to me experiencing it. But I, I don't think having kids in court, except for in extreme situations, is, uh, is a great idea. That's another total like hot button political topic, probably also like increased police presence in schools. Like, do you feel that there's a correlation between those things or is it more the school, you're something's happening at school, the school is going to the police or other parents are going to the police? Well, I, I, I think that it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, and you know, probably not a popular opinion, but I'm, I'm completely against even having school resource officers. I don't think that it's done anything to help. And, and frankly, I don't want my children walking around school with, with a police presence. If, if, we, if we need to, you know, make the school safer, I think we need to do that in, in a different way. Um, I don't want police officers talking to my child uh, without me around. Um, and, and I've told them as much, but I think it's more that people are becoming too reliant on the government for, for solutions rather than calling their neighbor and saying, hey, your kid punched my kid or threatened my kid or, or whatever. Uh, one of my son's friends uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a kid told him he was gonna kill him in school. And now that kid's out of school, not my son's friend. Uh, he was in fact a victim there, I guess, if you wanna call it that. It was never gonna happen, but now he's out of school for the rest of the year. Like they just kick kids out of school willy nilly. And, the, and a lot of the times the schools aren't doing the right thing. I mean, I know we're, we're more talking about the criminal idea, but the schools and these family court things go hand in hand. And um, I think that a lot of the times the schools are calling police on, on their students, then kicking them out. And then you, you have the instance where they have to hire me and navigate through uh, its family court, the youth part, um, which has both good and bad things about it because you can't technically be convicted of a crime when, when you're under, uh, I think it's under 19, it might be 19 and under. Um, but the other problem is, is you're at the mercy of a judge. So if you have a good, if you have a client who has a good case, and it stays in youth part, you don't have the right to a jury. So these kids aren't even getting the same rights that their adult counterparts would get. Now the punishments are less, but the problem is, is if you've got a bad judge on a case, you have to take some sort of deal or, or disposition to avoid potentially having the child taken away from, from the parents. Yeah, you know. I feel like this is like a whole other. Uh, is, I, I apologize. No, no that's interesting. It is. And, and you know, you, the irony, you made the comment about parents talking to one another and their neighbors. 
people are more connected than ever, but less inclined to have those conversations, I think, which is, it's, it's sad. Um, it's unfortunate. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I think, I, th I, I mean, I could, we could pick your brain all day and this is, this has been great again, as, as it was last time. Um, where, where can people find you if they have questions, if they unfortunately need your services, um, if their kids need your services, as we just learned, uh, where can they come to find you? Um, well, the, the name of the firm is O'Brien and Eggleston. Um, you can Google us. We're right downtown Albany on Sheridan Street. Uh, we practice throughout the capital region and, and frankly, beyond that. Um, we've got cases, I think, right now as far south as, as Putnam County currently and as far north as Franklin County. We go out west probably all the way to Syracuse or Binghamton sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the way that I do it, and I think I may have even done this um, at, at the end of the last thing, I give everybody my cell phone. If you need to get a hold of a criminal defense attorney, um, I want you to be able to get a hold of me. Obviously, I don't answer my phone all the time, but I'm pretty good about getting back to people. So you can call or text this number if you're ever in a criminal situation, 518-618-5423. Uh, so um, that, that's the way we do it. Um, my I, mind yeah. is exploding that you just gave yourself. <laughs> <laughs> people calling me. And, and sometimes I think that that's a bad idea. Um, but, you know, the, the truth is, is, is the easier I am to, to, to reach, I feel like the less my clients abuse it. So, um, you know, I, I, I understand uh, I've been, you know, in trouble before myself. I understand that you, you get um, really, really anxious and really, really nervous when you're accused of something. And most of the time I can put a lot of those fears to rest and I don't want them to have to wait until Monday morning or you know, uh, the, the next business day. If that happens on a Saturday and, and I can answer my phone or I can give you a call back, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to do that because I think that's part of my job as well is to kind of get you settled in so you don't do anything stupid and then alleviate some of the concerns because your mind runs wild and, and makes up uh, scenarios that, that probably aren't even gonna factor into your case. Yes, yeah, that's, that's I think that's, that's true. Rule of thumb for everyone facing a legal disaster. Yeah, we see the same thing in our practice. Um, yeah, well, Kevin, I changed my cell phone before the next time we're on, but I, I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Um, Kevin, thanks again. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can have you on again for a third time at some point in the future. Um, Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, hit us up on Instagram at TalkLex or visit DrazioPeterson.com and we'll be back again soon. Thanks. Thank you very much.